Hey, how you doing? My name is Nolan. I'm from Past Gas by Donut Media. We are the world's number one automotive podcast. That's right. We're a storytelling show. This week, it's part three of our history of Mazda. Last week, we talked about the rotary engine and how they started a little bit of racing. This week, they got a lot more serious with it. They needed to make a big splash in the world stage. They decided to go to Le Mans over there in France and prove that they could keep up with the Europeans and the Americans. They did have a hard time with it, though. It's very intriguing. The rotary engine we talked about last week had some challenges. This is for the real Mazda heads and anybody who's curious about automotive history in general. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. Pass gas. I'll see you there. July 3rd, 1966. It's the Formula One French Grand Prix, and two Ferraris are battling it out with a mysterious third driver in an unrecognizable race car. It's slower than and less refined than the two Ferraris, but somehow it's keeping up. A couple brilliant moves later, and the car moves up to second, now flanked by the screaming red beasts. Lorenzo Bandini has the power advantage in his Ferrari, but the second place car is being helped by his slipstream. There's nothing left to do but to push. No matter what he does, Bandini can't shake the guy. He's about to find out exactly why everyone was worried about the green and gold Brabham. As a mechanic and engineer, Jack Brabham brought ideas to the forefront of automotive construction that would have a lasting effect on the game. And as a race car driver, he brought a wild and unruly Australian flavor to the track, putting Oz on the racing map for decades to come. This duality, along with the persistent push to make his cars better, faster, and more reliable, made him an absolute legend. A true jack of all trades. So how did one Aussie from fairly humble beginnings turn into an innovative racer, engineer, and three-time Formula One world champion, and get a suburb named after him? Today on Pass Gas, we're discussing racing legend Jack Brabham and try to figure out how he became just so good at everything. That's what his car sounded like. Didn't he do that on purpose? Yeah. Yeah, he invented how a car sounds. That's amazing. Before uh, Jack Brabham decided that he wanted cars to sell like his name, they sounded like, whoops, 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 sorry, sorry, sorry. That's because they were designed like that to apologize to the horses that they were replacing. Because people were really worried that their horses' feelings were going to be hurt. And like right, rightfully so. Sorry, 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 sorry. That's the downshifting. I mean, rightfully so, horse suicides like peaked in like 1911. Yeah, that's pretty sad. All these horses just like shotgunned themselves in the head. Jesus. They did. Brabham's first engine said, sorry, not sorry. And it was like, kind of, it was like, oh, you got me in the first part. Yeah. Yeah. And it was like, Jacka, 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 jacka. Sorry, not sorry. Jacka, jacka, jacka. And then eventually you set it on. Yeah, I think that was a good choice. Jack! Welcome to Pass Gas, everybody. That was fun. My name is Nolan Sykes. I'm joined, as always, by my two co hosts. 
we got Joe Weber. Yo, what's up? I haven't seen you this much this week. I know I've been behind the scenes, uh, you know, pulling the strings, (laughs) (laughs) making moves. (laughs) Sweet. And that other voice you heard is James Pumphrey. What's up, James? I've seen you a ton this week. I was about to say, flip it up. Yeah. I've seen each other a lot. Seen a lot lot of each other this week. Seen a lot of each other in the, in the stew, in the shop. Yep. Like just like strong high fives. (laughs) <laughs> we did have a really strong fight, high five the other day. It was pretty awesome. Yeah. Did you hurt yourselves? I mean, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's the only way to do it. You know, yeah. you got to gotta, gotta feel some pain. That's how you know it was good. Um, yeah. So this week we're talking about Jack Brabham. Uh, if you're if you're into Formula One, you've definitely heard this guy's name before. I don't really know a ton about him, so I'm very excited to learn along with you guys. Speaking of Formula One storylines, uh, Drive to Survive is out. It's pretty good. Good season so far. I'm I'm not all the way through it. I'm like I I've got two episodes left. Yeah, I'm really trying to not blow it in one sitting because it is. It's like you know, stat your stash of uh, steaks. Yeah, and you don't want to eat all your steaks. At you don't want to eat all those Omaha steaks in one go. There's a Omaha steaks store. They have a they have a brick and mortar store on Pico. Yeah, but it's it's a hole. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's like absolute crap. It's hole. a freaking like basically a rest a rest stop bathroom compared to good chop. <laughs> anyway, um, I love Drive to Survive. I've always, I, it's so I love Drive to Survive. I like it a lot. I think it's uh, it's just amazing what that show has done for the sport in the U.S. Particularly like just the impact. It's really one of the smartest things any motorsport yeah. uh, series has ever done, or like any sports series and like the release date, like the fact that you can binge all of it and just be really set up for the season. That's perfect, man. It's so good. It's perfect. It's perfect. And you know what I have to say to the haters? Say it, dude. Go to film school (laughs) because producing a show is hard and it all comes down to what footage you have. Yeah. Maybe, maybe try crack film sometime. (laughs) Maybe try crack watching Citizen K one time. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, but you, before we start recording, you're talking about how it's just a marvel that the show even gets made and put out in time anyway. It's a phenomenal achievement in filmmaking. I think it's just so like if you think about how many people they are covering and how many people it takes to follow all those people. Yeah. Like just and they, amazing. And the turnaround is like two months. Yeah. They have to break the stories, which is super uh-huh. hard. If you just have raw footage and you're trying to piece it together to make a story, that's very difficult to do that in, you know, a couple months, edit it, button it up and have it ready to release right before the season is huge. Yeah. The fact that they get the footage on the plane. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so our story today is like Drive to Survive, but it would be in black and white. Yeah, just imagine black and white, uh, Will Buxton sitting in a studio. For some reason, there's a second shot where you can see like part of the light that's lighting his Mm -hmm. face. So just imagine that. Get in that mindset. Everybody's smoking. There's raw oysters. Yeah, everyone's smoking their interviews. That's right. There's raw oysters everywhere. They're drinking whiskey for lunch. Yeah, everyone has a pheasant. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. They got some good chopsteaks they're grilling up in the paddock. Yeah, yeah. In the paddock, they're all, they has got like lamb chops. Yeah. And like when they, when they come into pit, they get out of the car and they go eat like a little lamb lollipop. Lamb with <laughs> mint is such like a 60s old guy food. 
Mm-hmm. And I'm talking about mint so, mint jelly. Sounds good. I've never mint had jelly, it though. Yeah. Oh, mint jelly. Oh, interesting. Lamb with mint jelly. Mm. Who is the first person to do that? Who's the caveman who did that? Is there a small plates restaurant I can go to that has that? Uh, oh yeah, for probably sure. Frank and Musso's on Hollywood Boulevard. It's uh, Musso okay. and Frank's. Oh, okay, sorry. love small plates big small plates guy okay uh let's let's get into the story this week jack brabham was born on april 2nd 1926 in hertzville a suburb of sydney australia hertzville that's where my bully took me in when i was in high school (laughs) at the age of 12 his His family pretty irresponsibly let their son drive both the family car and the trucks for the family grocery business. Luckily, this brush with child endangerment did not lead to any serious injuries, but rather an early fascination with cars and the industry behind them. At 15 years old, Jack dropped out of technical college to go work in a garage as a mechanic and take night school classes for mechanical engineering. One month after he turned 18, Brabham enlisted in the Royal Australian Air Force. Brabham hoped to become a pilot, but due to a wartime shortage, he utilized his skills and became a flight mechanic. When he was discharged two years later, he left with the rank of leading craftsman. He returned home to Hertzville and started his own engineering business, buying and selling secondhand cars and servicing slash repairing vehicles on a plot of land behind his grandpa's house. I'd say... Engineering business is a stretch. Yeah. A little <laughs> like, bit. <laughs> uh, he had a backyard and he bought a bunch of crap and sold it. <laughs> this is uh this reminds me of uh Bruce McLaren's story a little bit too. Yeah, yeah. I'm getting he, like he, real Bruce McLaren deja vu right now. Well, you might yeah. be excited to find out that they were our buddies. Oh mm-hmm. buddies. Buddies, you say. Bruce McLaren, of course, from New Zealand, not Australia. An American named Johnny Schomburg is the man responsible for getting the Aussie into racing. It all started when Schomburg encouraged his friend Brabham to try out midget car racing. It's not what you sound. It sounds like, all right, uh, or speed car racing, as it was known in Australia, which was gaining mainstream popularity worldwide. These are uh, early sprint cars. Brabham initially scoffed at the idea, calling the drivers lunatics for driving ridiculous-looking open-wheeled cars in endless circles on dirt roads. Uh, sprint cars are the ones with, like, the half swastika on top of them, right? What? Uh, sure, yeah. <laughs> it's just got a big wing, right? Or like a it's half got a wing? big wing, yeah. It's like the two, like, it's like... Yeah, they are opposite. I've never thought of it as a half swastika before, but it's shaped that way because of the side force you get from those big flat elements pointing up and down. Mm-hmm. And then the downforce from the downward element. But yeah, the early midget cars did not have this. So these are like sprint cars without any sort of arrow on them. I've got a question. Are the, the inside wheels smaller than the outside wheels? I'm not sure about these cars in particular, but on modern sprint cars, yes. Yes, they are. It helps they are rotate weird the car. cars. They yeah, weird they're awesome. Cars. Weird, weird cars. Uh, Brabham was a sucker for automotive construction, and the two friends built a car together in 1948. Hmm. Schoenberg was the initial driver of their car, but ironically, Schoenberg's wife convinced him to stop racing, leaving Brabham to be the lone lunatic driver of the pair and take over. These cars are dangerous, dude. Especially back then, I don't even think they had seatbelts, so if you flipped and got thrown from the car, you're definitely getting injured. And for sure, they don't have cup holders. 
Mm-hmm. They do not. You're right. Even though he was reluctant to race at first, Rabham excelled at the sport quickly. Very quickly. Uh, like he won the third race he ever competed in quickly. Wow. This was an early blip in the Jack Brabham is just really good at everything car-related narrative that would only continue on to further lengths from here. He became a regular competitor and frequent winner in speed car racing. Speed car racing? Speed car racing. Speed car. It's a car that goes speedy. Only a year into his racing career in 1949, the hobby became a profession for Brabham, who was developing the skills and know how to race hard and fast on cars he fine-tuned himself. Oh, yeah. The techniques that he learned in speed car racing would come in handy for the rest of his career. Brabham was once quoted saying in regards to speed racing, You had to have quick reflexes. In effect, you lived or possibly died on them. Whoa. I I would say that uh, this sort of like dirt oval racing is probably, I would say it's similar to rally racing in, in the skills that you pick up. There's a lot of oversteer involved. Uh, a lot of, a lot of like just insane amounts of car control. It's like all the guys that come from sprint car racing into NASCAR are the best. So it's interesting. I've, I've never heard a story where a guy comes from sprint car racing and eventually goes into, into open wheel racing. Like we will with this story. So this is, is pretty cool. He would go on to win the 1948 Australian speed car championship, 1949 Australian and Southern Australian Speed Car Championship and the 1950 and 51 Australian Championship. After this string of wins, Brabham considered upping his game and became interested in road racing. There you go. His road racing career started similarly to his midget racing career. Construct first, race later. He first started buying and working on British-made Cooper cars and then started competing in 1953. Brabham was a rebel and revolutionary from the get-go in his road racing days, but not for reasons one might immediately assume. Is he a jerk? No. Was he doing flips? Was Uh -uh. he doing kickflips? No. The reason was the fact that he had advertising on his car. Oh. That's... What a rebel. That's... (laughs) He's a businessman. He's not a businessman. He's a businessman. Businessman. Brabham worked closely with the Red X Fuel Company and thought it only made sense to show the company some love on a car that they helped pay for. Brabham's Cooper Bristol was known as the Red X Special because of the advertisement painted all over the car. This did not sit well with racing officials and, in fact, moved racing authorities to ban advertising on cars. Can you imagine? I can't. You can't. Yo, you guys got to see, you guys got to look up a picture of this Cooper. I thought it was a mini Cooper. It's Uh -uh. not. It's a open top little roadster looking thing. Kind of reminds me of a Jaguar. Looks like a Jaguar D-type a little bit. Mm. Uh, But that thing is beautiful, man. Wow. Swoopy. Very swoopy. Now, perhaps this anti-authority stance is one of the reasons he earned the nickname Blackjack. Mmm. With ruthless attitude and approach to racing and shadowy silence, not to mention some cool jet black hair. Brabham earned a nickname and reputation that let people know he was a force to be reckoned with on the track. He was also one to recognize the talent in others. He liked a fair fight on the track. If you passed Brabham, he didn't take it personally. It was probably because you were racing better than him. Now, not only was Brabham a skilled driver who was fun to watch, he consistently held the mentality of share. We're good, but we can do better. (laughs) (laughs) 
Blackjack competed in Australia and New Zealand until early 1950 when he decided that he wanted to take on bigger and better international competition in Europe. Brabham settled in the UK upon his arrival and quickly became involved with the Cooper Car Company, the cars he worked on for a majority of his racing career. Frequently going to the Cooper factory, he started working on a bobtail mid-engine sports car for Formula One racing. Europe had a different kind of road racing with more sophisticated cars than ones he was used to in speedway racing. Brabham made his first Formula One Grand Prix appearance in the 1955 British Grand Prix at the age of 29. The car he drove had a two-liter engine, half a liter less than the maximum permitted size. He didn't win, but after competing against the leading contemporaries of his time, including Sterling Moss, he considered himself a level up from his speedway days, turning into a worthy competitor. It's crazy hearing these names, and then you see the date. It's like the 50s and know that these people competed for like so much longer. Mm -hmm. The 50s are so long ago. They do be a long time ago. Yeah. Yeah. We should do an episode on Sterling Moss. God, what a freaking British sounding name, dude. We haven't done one yet? I don't think so. Email us with the (laughs) word Sterling Moss if you want us to do it. Email us at passgas at donutmedia.com and let us know if we've done an episode on Sterling Moss yet. (laughs) We do not have a search function on any of our computers. We're not allowed to use keyboards. We got in trouble. (laughs) (laughs) We're reading this off of uh, Etch-a-Sketches. (laughs) <laughs> takes so long. <laughs> we'll be right back with more of this story. But first, a word from our sponsors. Brabham's first of many notable wins in his career was the 1959 Monaco Grand Prix. This was his first international championship win, and he became the first Australian to win a Formula One Grand Prix. Brabham also went on to win the 1959 British Grand Prix in the Cooper Climax T-54, where he drove 225 miles at an average of 90 miles per hour. You want me to lube up your Climax, Jackie? In 1959, that's stupid. Uh, Yeah. I was trying to think of how to react, but then my brain just shut off and I stared at the wall for four seconds. I think that is a compliment. It is. It is. I started drooling. (laughs) That was such a good joke. (laughs) I was like uh, Jack Nicholson at the end of uh, One Flew Over the Cuckoos. In 1959, Brabham competed in the American Grand Prix at Sebring with some of his most worthy adversaries, like Brits Sterling Moss and Tony Brooks, as well as Cooper teammate and New Zealander Bruce McLaren. Jack would be considered one of Bruce's mentors, given how they met in the McLaren family workshop. But Brabham would consider the two of them to be friends. He never felt a competitive edge with McLaren and eventually got a kick out of helping the young driver get his start. With Sterling Moss running into mechanical trouble and being forced to pull out, the victory seemed to be right in Brabham's hands. Brabham and McLaren were first and second, respectively, for a majority of the race until Brabham ran out of gas during the last lap. Brabham didn't go down without a fight, though. He hopped out of his car and started to push it 100 yards to the finish line. That's cool. That's badass. There's got to be more of that in Formula One. <laughs> yeah, now they get like a puncture and they're like, done. Box, box. Yeah. All right, turn it off. <laughs> Jack ended up finishing fourth in the race, and the then 22-year-old 
Bruce McLaren, became the youngest driver to win an international Grand Prix. Even with his hate-to-lose blackjack mentality, Brabham did love a fair fight and was happy to see his teammate and friend McLaren win. This right here is a prime example of one of the greatest at the sport being a pretty great sport. Aw. Yeah. I guess. In 1960 alone, Jack Brabham won the Dutch, Belgium, French, British, and Portuguese Grand Prix. Good Lord. Brabham and Cooper were not only a winning combination, but a revolutionary one in the racing world. Pretty much every racing car at the time had their engines in the front of the vehicle. Cooper's were a bit different, with the engines placed behind the driver to help improve weight distribution and handling. Uh, no, can you take that back and read it more like, uh, Cooper's were a bit <laughs> a different. <laughs> uh, Cooper's were a bit different. Yeah. <laughs> with their engines placed behind the driver to help improve <laughs> weight distribution. Oh, I'm so serious. <laughs> <laughs> and handling. <laughs> Keep on rolling, baby. All right. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> what is going on? I don't know. We're, I'm I'm goofy today. I'm feeling goofy. You guys are like on another level. I I <laughs> have yet to reach. Well, we didn't have to walk a dog today. That's true. <laughs> yeah, it really, really drained me. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just trying to get the spark back. You know what I mean? I feel uh-huh. like the past month been really busy. Had to move. That really yeah. took it out of me. I feel like I'm still recovering from my move. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm just, I'm just trying to, trying to feel the spark again. Yeah. Yeah. If you, if anyone needs to move, we're pretty good at moving. Nope. You should hire us. <laughs> don't know how else to move. Yeah. Pass Your side gig is moving. Pass gas moving. No one's helped me move twice. Yeah. No one helped me move, uh, once, but it was, it was a big couch. It was like four trips worth of hassle. Joe owns mm. the biggest couch in the world. He bought it from the Sultan of Brunei. <laughs> I'm not dissing the couch, Joe. Yeah, it is not a gonna, lovely you're couch. You're not going to turn that down. No, you know? no. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a hell of a couch you got there. You got yourself there, Joe. Uh, it was it's just no slouch of a couch. So slouch of a couch. Nice. In 1961, Brabham raced the Indianapolis 500 in a different version of the Formula One Cooper. Although it wasn't a faster car just yet, the mid-engine Cooper handled turns like a dream and showed the Indy drivers at the time that this variation of racing car had the potential to change how races were won. Control of the car was just as important as its speed. Within five years, Indianapolis would see mostly mid-engine cars thanks to Brabham's Cooper, which didn't even win that Indy race. (laughs) With Brabham's success with the Cooper team, they were proving to the racing world that their style of cars was the right idea. Brabham didn't want to just stop there. He knew that there was more to be done, more changes and improvements to be made. The Cooper company, however, didn't want to spend the money to build a stronger, faster, better car. They were having so much success as it was. Why not keep up the good work? Brabham soon stuck out on his own and started a company with friend Ron Tornak. Motor Racing Developments, which produced racing cars, which would later be referred to as Brabham's. Why does like the most vague racing teams sound so cool motor racing developments like that sounds sick yeah murder i think it's that murder the addition of that s at the end if it was motor racing development it's like meh all right motor racing developments 
implies that they've Dude, already they're developing multiples. They've got multiple things going on. They uh, they're, doubles, triples. Yeah, yeah. doubles, triples. <laughs> yeah. It's got three of everything. I would add another R to make it Motor Racing Developments Racing. Yeah, so it's murder. <laughs> yeah, so it's murder. Hell yeah. <laughs> racing twice on there. Yeah. <laughs> racing Developments Motor Racing. Racing Developments Racing. So Motor Racing Developments is the company. That's the company, yeah. and then the racing yeah. is the team. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> is the team. Yeah, dude. <laughs> MRDR, dude, on the side of a race car on the murder. side of your helmet. That's sick. Hell yeah. White helmet. Yeah. Just black block letters, murder. <laughs> it's hard. Yeah, written in Sharpie. <laughs> okay, wait. <laughs> I just like scratched into it with a knife. <laughs> a ballpoint bick. Like like scratched into it like a desk. <laughs> uh, Jack continued to race for Cooper, but it wouldn't be for long. Brabham's name alone held a lot of weight in the racing world, and it would be dumb for him to not capitalize on it. In 1962, Jack decided to set up his own team, the Brabham Racing Organization, Bro. Leaving, yeah, leaving the Cooper team. Brabham's main focus during this time was the production of new, innovative race cars and developing a standout racing team. Despite efforts to progress in the sport, a new engine limit in Formula One of 1,500 cubic centimeters didn't mesh well with Brabham, and he did not win a single race with his 1.5-liter car. I'm going from the murder team to the bro team. Yeah, dude, I used to be down with murder, and now I, like, rep the bro. <laughs> Brabham's team suffered a lull during this time, and in 1965, he almost considered retiring to focus on managing his team. So, he let American Dan Gurney take over as lead driver. It's so crazy that all these guys know each other. Yeah. I love doing these old episodes, like these olden times episodes. Dan Gurney's like, oh, I just, I just made this flat. Yeah, because they, they all show up in each other's stories. It's great. Anyway, Gurney taking over as lead driver actually led to the team's first victory. Good call. After going from being the talk of the racing world to taking on a role that was more behind the scenes than star, Brabham wasn't a likely comeback kid. All that would change, however, when he got his hands dirty once again and to become a star in the world of automotive engineering. The Formula One engines of the 1960s were inefficient unreliable and difficult to produce. In 1966, Brabham set out to make an engine that was more efficient and could win races. He teamed up with Repco, an Australian engineering company that at the time had zero experience in designing complete engines. Together, they developed a lightweight 3-liter V8. Now, Brabham was unsure of how the engine would compete, but knew that it had potential to run efficiently and win. But would it work as intended? Or would this be his undoing? On July 3rd, 1966, a date that has no uh, weight on Australians. For us, we call it uh, Independence Day's Eve. <laughs> <laughs> on July 3rd, 1966, Brabham and his BT-19 race car lined up to race the high-speed circuit of Rhyme Goo in the 1966 <laughs> Grand Prix. Uh, rhyme Goo is my favorite uh, Rhyme Fest album. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's pretty good. Joining him on the starting line were Formula One powerhouse Lorenzo Bandini and racing novice Mike Parks, who are both driving for Ferrari. Now, at the age of 40, Blackjack and his lovingly nicknamed Old Nail BT19 weren't necessarily considered 
to be the hot contenders in the race, and the new engine had yet to prove itself. As the race began, Bandini took the lead, but Brabham closely followed, using the slipstream of Bandini's Fortissimo Ferrari to pull him up to eight miles faster down the straights than the BT-19 could handle on its own. Now, this allowed Brabham to consolidate his lead over Ferrari's second driver, Parks. After 12 laps of close quarter battling, Bandini dropped away from Brabham when his Ferrari was stopped by a broken throttle cable. Finally in the lead, Brabham, the old nail, breezed past the finish line. That day, the Brabham BT-19 chassis ended up making history, along with Brabham's intense driving skills. He had claimed victory in the 1966 French Grand Prix and became the first racer to ever win a world championship in a car of his own make and model. That could never happen ever again. I did it. <laughs> the Pumphrey 502. What, what car did you? Pumphrey 502. <laughs> what did you win, though? Freaking Monaco. The Grand Prix. <laughs> in, in a Mustang? I won Monaco in a Pumphrey 502. Don't look it up. Don't Dude, look it up. I don't think don't you want to start that. The 40-year-old seemed unlikely to be the star racer on that year's world stage. Even in all his success, Brabham was still referred to as an old man by racing standards. But old Blackjack had a sense of humor about it, showing up to the 1966 Dutch Grand Prix wearing a very long fake beard like Rip Van Winkle and hobbling in with a walking <laughs> stick. The old man also went on to win that race and won four international Grand Prix races in 1966. That's a lot of wins. That's a lot, especially for the time. 40, especially when you're 40 in 1966. Like 40 in 1966 is like 65 now. <laughs> and if those bragging rights weren't enough, he also went on to be named Australian of the Year in 1966. What? Cool. Dude, that's so coveted. Yeah, dude. I've been shooting for it forever. <laughs> and he became the first race car driver to be knighted by the Queen of England. Whoa. The first. Wow. A ton of them have been. That's crazy. Lewis Hamilton uh, is a knight. Yeah. Jackie Stewart is a knight, among others. Those are just the two that popped into my head. The rest of the 60s were a bit of a roller coaster for Brabham's racing career. After a couple Grand Prix wins again in France and then Canada, Brabham didn't see another big win until 1970 when he was 44 years old. Damn. 44 in 1970 is like 85. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Those steaks and whiskey for lunch start to add up. Mm -hmm. Also, like 1970s hospitals, like everything ticked. Like everything was analog. Yeah. Like there was a no lot digital. Of, a lot of brown and orange decor as well. <laughs> Just not a, you know, it's a Yeah. Watch weird the vibe. first act of The Exorcist. <laughs> That's what a hospital is like. It was like MASH. <laughs> We'll get back to more past guests, but right now, a word from our sponsors. In those years, the engineer in him got the best of his races, wanting to test new parts and cars instead of going with what worked already. By the end of the decade, Brabham's wife, Betty, was pushing for Jack to retire and return it to his family back in Australia. She was scared stiff every time he drove but uh, that's understandable uh, to be scared like that because um, she's a wife of a race car driver. And he's like almost 50. Yeah, I get so it. So she was probably like, come on, Jack. <laughs> Let's go. Like, we're, we're done, dude. I've got a steak for you at home. <laughs> I've got a big old steak for you. 
I'll put another roux on the Bobby. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, are they eating kangaroo? Yeah. That's what I that's what the steaks I've been talking about this whole time have been kangaroo steaks. <laughs> yep. My God, dude. Or ostrich. Delicious. Yeah. I put another Joey on the Bobby. I know. <laughs> it's a- like <laughs> kangaroo veal. <laughs> Going back to Rhyme Goo real quick. I really love that one track uh, where where uh, Idea refers to himself as a uh, thesaurus, brontosaurus. Uh-huh. And then he does a whole verse with like a dinosaur kind of motif. Pretty good. Yeah, dude, Rhyme Goo is such a good uh, song, like the, the titular song of the album because it's got Idea... Uh, slug from slug. atmosphere. Yeah, of course. It's got yeah. Aesop Rock. Aesop Rock. LP is on it. Um, yeah, yeah that's cool that they had him. Yeah, Brother Ali is on it. Yeah. Sage Francis. Yeah, Mad Professor to uh, the whole album. Mm-hmm. And didn't... Uh, uh, John Mayer, or yeah, they sampled yeah. John Mayer for some. Like, no, he that actually was... played on it. He played oh, live wow. on it. Yeah, I didn't realize that. Yeah, he's playing guitar on it. That's pretty sweet, dude. That's cool. That like, I don't, I, I, I still don't really know what the connection is there between the like Mayer and. Is this a real yeah, album? I guess it's. All right, because you guys are <laughs> convincing me. <laughs> this is very, very realistic. <laughs> It's one of my favorite bits is both about fake yeah. songs. <laughs> Fantasy songs. There's no denying the high risk, high reward stakes that come with racing. Brabham had several near brushes with death in his racing days, including a serious foot injury in 1969 during a testing accident. Brabham also lost several colleagues in his time, which was an unfortunately frequent occurrence, but none hit closer to home than the loss of his protege, Bruce McLaren. At the age of 33, McLaren died while going for one last test drive in one of his cars before a race on June 2nd, 1970. It was a Can-Am car. Uh, the wing element on the rear failed, and he lost control and hit a, uh, a steward's tower. Although reluctant to retire and convinced he still had some good racing years left in him, several things pushed Brabham to do so. His family's desire to move back to Australia and Betty Brabham's hope that their sons could grow up outside of the racing world were certainly high up on the list. Still, there's no denying that the loss of McLaren hit close to home and helped Jack's decision to become final. Jack retired in 1970 at the age of 44. He moved his family back to Australia to live a simple farm life. He still kept his garages and manufacturing businesses going, even starting an aviation company. The Brabham Racing Team lived under new ownership. Jack Brabham died at the age of 88 after a lengthy battle with liver disease. The day that Brabham died was May 19th, 2014, the eve of the Monaco Grand Prix, the race that many, many years earlier in 1959 was his first big international win. He often referred to that race as the one he enjoyed the most. Brabham's impact on the racing world lives on to this day. His mechanical skills had a lasting impact, not only with engines, but with brakes as well. Brabham helped emphasize the importance of brake zones and brakes in general in Grand Prix driving. The Brabham racing team has a long legacy of its own. The team continued after Brabham's retirement under the ownership of Formula One's Bernie Eccleston, winning two driver's championships in the early 80s and continued to thrive until dismantling in 1992. Even after a big move back to his home country, Jack's kids could not stay away from the world of motor racing. All three of his sons got into the industry. After Brabham's death in 2014, Brabham's youngest son, David, 
announced the formation of a racing team under the new name of Project Brabham. Both David and older brother Jeff went on to both win championship races the world over, including Le Mans, just one of the few races their dad never got to win. Even Jack's grandkids couldn't stay away. His grandsons, Matthew and Sam, both started out racing go-karts before graduating to car racing at a fairly young age. Jack Brabham was the start of a racing legacy that is still going strong 60 years later. In his career, Brabham was the winner of 14 Grand Prix races and was a three-time Formula One World Drivers Champion. Looking at his accolades and accomplishments, it's easy to think of Jack Brabham as a perfectionist and jack-of-all-trades. Pun not intended. (laughs) That's not intended. Accidental genius there. (laughs) Now, in reality, his attitude seemed to be more of the mindset of, yeah, this is good, but can we do it better? As a mechanic, he always wanted to work on and improve cars from the inside out to race better and so that he and his contemporaries and his teams could be the best on the road. As a racer, he saw what his fellow drivers thrived on, learned from their skill, and upped his own ante. He seemed to not take cars or racing for what they were, but saw what they could be and go from there. His prowess and ingenuity made Brabham the pride of Australia and a Formula One favorite that should not be soon forgotten. I think he sounds like a cool dude. Dude, up your own Annie is like a cool shirt. Hey, where do you want me to put this? I don't know. Up your own Annie. <laughs> <laughs> Nice, Joe. <laughs> uh, yeah, what a great story. Great dude. That was a fun one. Thank you, everyone, for listening to this episode of Pass Gas. Uh, you know, I just really appreciate you listening. Thank you very much. Thanks for allowing us to do this. Yeah, thank you, everyone who tunes in every week. Follow the boys at Joe G. Weber. Follow James at James Pumphrey. Follow me at Nolan J. Sykes. Big thank you to our producers this week, Gavin Kinsell and Thomas Willette, and our writer this week, Kristen Egan, homie from Milwaukee. Homies from Milwaukee, never let you down. Uh, this was a great script. That was that was a lot of fun. Um, all right. Tell someone about the show. Tell someone about the show, yeah, because word of mouth is the best way to like kind of spread podcasts. You know what I mean? Yeah. But if you have the means... I would love it if you would hire a skywriter <laughs> and and write past gas podcast available wherever podcasts are available in the sky in your town. I would love that. That would be sweet. That would be very cool. It shouldn't be that hard. No, it shouldn't be that hard. It doesn't seem like that hard. So quit pretending like it is. <laughs> All right. Thank you very much for listening. Goodbye.